Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. So welcome to Memphis Metropolis, everybody. I'm Emily Trenum, your host. You're listening to WYXR 91.7 FM. And first of all, I want to thank everybody that donated during the last pledge drive, which was last week on the, on the show, on the, on the station, actually people that donated during the show and also donated uh, just throughout the week. So we really appreciate the support from the community. So this week, um, delighted to welcome Nick Walker, who is the Director of Parks and Neighborhoods for the City of Memphis. And the subject of the day is going to be a recently published Mark uh, Parks Master Plan for the city. And so welcome, Nick. Thank you for having me. So... Th- this is going to sound like an obvious question, but I'm going to go ahead and ask, ask it anyway. Like, why the why do a parks plan and why now? So as, the, as a parks director, we look at the planning process to where we're really looking at the next 10 years. Uh, the last parks master plan that was done for the city of Memphis was in 1999. So it was about 22 years ago. Um, if you talk to anyone in the parks industry, that's just way too long. Um, the concepts that were in there were dated. It makes it difficult from a capital planning perspective. It makes it difficult from just a regular planning perspective. Um, and so when I came on as the division director or the deputy director about three years ago, we started the process of issuing an RFP so that we could bring in some folks to help us do a master plan. Um, and the goal would be to update it every five years. So we do it, it sets the course for the next 10 years. And in about five years, we do a check to see how we're doing. So how does, of course, we're in a, um, and I'm a planner by training. So I, you know, pay attention to, you know, what plans are being done when, and we're in a big era of planning right now after a long period, as I'm sure you know, where we didn't plan anything, we just kind of let the market forces take us where we were going to go. Um, and that's impacted your work, obviously. But um, but how does the park plan align with the Memphis 3.0 comprehensive plan that was developed, you know, kind of at the same time, or certainly there was overlap there? There's a little bit of overlap, although I think most of their community engagement was wrapped up before we started on ours. Um, ironically, if you read through 3.0, the biggest takeaway that you get for parks is, hey, parks should develop a master plan. <laughs> and so uh, in talking with uh, with John Zena, you know, not only were they fully supportive from uh, at the time they did at the Office of Planning and Development, now the Department of Planning and Development, um, Ashley Cash, who has recently been named uh, as the director of housing and community development and was the architect of 3.0, was actually on our steering committee. And so that was intentional. It wasn't accidental. We wanted to make sure that planning and development had a seat at the table, 
so that our focuses were aligned with theirs, not necessarily down to the level of um, which small area plans and anchors and all that fun stuff, but more philosophically uh, that we were aligned in terms of up, not out. Uh, we really wanted to improve the assets that we have and focus on the neighborhoods where we needed a development. Uh, if you look at the Parks Master Plan itself, one of the big things that we did was to take the 3.0 equity index and overlay it on top of our inventory because um, that helps us identify where our gaps were. I noticed that and uh, you know thought it was great. Um, but you know, I think actually that there's probably it's probably a decent amount of overlap even with the anchor strategy, especially in some of these neighborhoods. We a lot of our neighborhoods don't just don't have density, yeah. and so there's not you know a very busy intersection with you know three story buildings. Um, and so I can imagine. I'm not. I don't know what all the anchors are, but certainly. And then I'm just like picking on Fraser, like, you know, Ed Rice Community Center. And I mean, that may not be an anchor, but in some neighborhoods, that kind of thing is going to be an anchor probably. And there's probably a lots of opportunities for alignment and leverage as you, you know, implement on, 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 both, on both divisions. No, that's, I mean, one of the things that we talk about a lot is uh, Walter Casey, who's the community center director at the Leicester Community Center in Binghamton. Um talks about how the Leicester Community Center is both literally and figuratively the center of Binghamton. For uh, sure. And so that, you're absolutely right. Uh, the Fraser Community Center, uh, Ed Rice, although it is not in the center of Fraser, <laughs> uh, it is the center. Uh, that is where folks have wedding receptions. That is where class reunions take place. That is where folks from um, the, the Fraser's or CDC meet, you know? so. It's, it's always been that. And so investment in those, even if it's, I want to say it, it is probably a quarter of a mile from the anchor, uh, which if memory serves correct is, it's either Watkins and Fraser Boulevard or it's Watkins and- Overton uh, Crossing, maybe. Overton Crossing, yeah. So it's, it's, not, it's not exactly there, but you're right. It is so close that development into that community center and the library across the street will- weave its way into that anchor. So you did a, um, you know, a, a really extensive community engagement process and, you know, really got down, spent a lot of time getting down to the neighborhood level, which I think is incredibly important. So um, just talk a little bit about that. And then also what were, I mean, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the community priorities that were identified, but what, surpri what surprised you and your staff as you were out in the community talking, um, if anything, talking about parks and community centers and, the, and priorities for the community? Well, the reach out into the community was intentional uh, because what I've seen too often, um, I read probably 10 or 15 master plans. Um, and the ones that I saw the most value in were the ones that really sought to get it right. Um, and one of the things that we did with our folks is, and this is something that Ashley suggested actually, was we went out the first time and we did community engagement. And then we went back and we made sure to repeat back to the folks what we heard and made sure we heard it right. 
Um, and I will say the thing that was probably the most surprising to me was that what we really saw was a desire to connect everything. Um, you hear that a lot in the abstract um, from folks like, you know, Nick Euler uh, with uh, the pedestrian program and, uh, you know, Keith Cole at the Wolf River Greenway. Um, that, oh, people want that connection. And, and you, you sort to not get jaded, but you say, oh, well, they have a vested interest in believing that. But I will tell you, after doing more than 60 community engagements, that's true. <laughs> people want to be able to get from their house to their neighborhood park, to their regional park, to their, you know, large um, multi-state regional park. Uh, and they want to be able to do that off street safely. And so the fact that, that that was not just an academic exercise, but people in every neighborhood, regardless of the socioeconomics, said that to us, I found fascinating. That is interesting. And of course, that's been a big emphasis, I think, in the community. I mean, the regional, I don't know if you were here when we did the regional green print plan, mm -hmm. but that was, of course, a theme of, you know, connecting green and blue assets um, and I do think it's important to people. I agree. I'm one of the people that just says it because I think it's true and I think everybody should. So I'm happy to hear that that was uh, not just my bias or Nick's, but but that it was confirmed by what you heard in the community. Um, one of the things that I thought was kind of interesting when I read over the plan was that, um, was that people there was a lot of prioritization of you know, facilities and programs for adults. I mean, you know, a lot of times when you go out in the community, I mean, I would say one of the first things you hear is we need things for kids to do after school. And of course there's a huge lack of that. And I'm not saying that wasn't a priority, but there was, it seems like there was even more desire and maybe it's a function of our aging population. It seems like it was even more of a desire for programs, facilities to serve adults. Yeah, no, I think that's, to me, it actually ties into another point, which I found fascinating. One of the big things we heard from folks was that our communication needed to be better. Um, and I think that points to the, folks, the fact that folks don't know about the adult programming that we have and that they may or may not be aware of the youth programming that already exists. Um, so you combine those two things and it is sort of indicative of the fact that we need to do a better job of advocating for both of those things. Um, but to, to, to your original question, I'll circle back to that. What it shows is that a lot of times when people think about Parks and Rec, what they focus their effort on is that youth programming. And it is because to your point, there is an assumption that there is a lack of youth programming out there. I will tell you from knowing the partners that exist out there from the YMCA to the Boys and Girls Club, to the Croc Center, to- Ma'am. Um, Ma'am, yeah, continue to go on to the, to the neighborhood Christian centers. You just go down the list, there is a lot of programming out there. And so what happens is it's not that the market is oversaturated, but our efforts have been focused on that. And you combine that with the aging population 
and suddenly there's a gap that exists, which is good programming somewhere between the kids and the seniors. Because I have six dedicated senior centers. What I don't have is a lot of focus on the programming from the time they get to 24 to 55. And that's where there's a gap. And that was one of the things identified by this plan. That's interesting. What is that? I don't want to digress too much, but what is that kind of, I mean, I'm, of course, I guess I'm technically a senior, but, um, but the, I'm trying to imagine what that is. I mean, I think of adults go into community centers now for community meetings mm-hmm. and maybe um, club meetings of club stuff like that. But what kind of programming would um, would maybe they do in, in other cities that caters to adults? One of the big things, and I think you'll see it, it's sort of like code word or whatever. But people say quality adult programming. What they're honestly talking about is fitness classes. Okay. And if you see one of the other things that's highlighted, it is improved fitness equipment in the centers. Um, and that's, it's interesting because we always compare ourselves to Nashville, but like one of the things I see from Nashville is that they actually have sort of health club quality exercise and fitness equipment in some of their community centers. And it's a fee-based service. And that is one of the things that we also found coming out of this is that there is actually an appetite, uh, which is counter to the narrative. Uh, and it's in a city where we struggle with poverty, there is this assumption though, that everything should be free. Um, I have friends at the Salvation Army that always point out to me that in their stores, there is a charge even for things that are heavily subsidized. Because if you give, if you, if you tell people that something is free, they associate it having lesser value. And I think we are seeing the same thing in the community centers. I think that we are looking at doing things like improving the quality of some of the amenities and having it be a fee-based service, making sure we continue to provide the level of service that we do today to anyone and everyone, regardless of their ability to pay, but also offering some more premium-like things so that we meet that need. I was also struck by that. Um, people's willingness to pay. Mm-hmm. I mean, and when you, some of the facilities you mentioned, um, you know, the Croc, the Y. Um, I mean, those are you know designed to um, to be accessible to a broad segment of the community. But I'm a member of the Croc, and it's not free. <laughs> and it's um, I think what you know I, what what I pay, which is I think very reasonable, would certainly be a barrier to somebody. And plus, people, of course, there's the transportation access. I mean, if you could, I, I love this idea of putting fitness centers and, and, and a lot of the community centers, I mean, you know, have a lot of underutilized base. Um, that's a great idea. And then just, and some of them have them. I know Orange Mound Senior Center has a, has a, a workout space with equipment. And I know I've seen a few others. There's a... There's a difference, though, and I think this is what people are asking for. There's a difference between a couple of treadmills and a few exercise bikes and a dedicated workout space where we can also bring in instructors to offer classes. Um, and that's really what we're talking about. Hickory Hill, and it's and it's fascinating because it well predates me. But when Hickory Hill was built in the early 2000s, there is two things. One, there's a dedicated like 
dance studio that can be used for. Oh, there's that, there's that walking path, yep. that's yep. second level. I, that's a beautiful community center. It's, it's really a model of what all of ours going forward should be. And uh, the pool. I mean, yep. that's a great, yeah, that's a great community center. But if you go sort of down that hallway across from the dance studio, just past the pool, there is a large, looks like the first floor of a 10 fitness space. Uh, it's got some equipment that isn't in great shape right now, but that's because it was bought in the early 2000s. The idea was originally that there was a $5 a month workout room fee that was used to create a fund that sustained buying the equipment for that room. And that's what we're talking about is, is leasing or purchasing nicer gym quality workout equipment but charging a price that is affordable and is not croc level, even though, as you point out, croc isn't LA fitness, which isn't Germantown athletic club. You know I mean? Like there's a, there's certainly scales of economy in this, but figuring that out makes it sustainable and affordable, which are really the two aims of recreation. Yeah, that, 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 that's a great idea. And it is gratifying to know that people are willing to pay for services to, to, to a certain extent and assuming that they're affordable. So if you're just joining us, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis and WYXR 91.7 FM. And we're talking about the recently created master plan for parks with Nick Walker, who's the director of parks and neighborhoods for the city. So Nick, um, I noticed that one of the themes of the, I mean, there was a number of values identified in the beginning and, but one of them is equity, which is there, Chris has a big emphasis on equity and planning generally, which I think is great. Um, but one thing I wanted to, um, you know, a lot of these kind of plans, the implementation, there's a lot of balancing going on. And I know one of the things that you have embraced, and, and I think the plan mentions this, is the desire to uh, make more people closer to a park. Um, and I forget what that's called. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. The, um, the, the Trust for Public Land and the Urban Land Institute, um, that everyone should live within this. Is it within a mile? Yeah. So how do you, um, which is a, is a great goal, but, um, but at the same time, there's the, you know, it seems like the number one priority from a funding perspective is maintenance and fixing up what we already have. So how do you increase access for more people um, if you're not going to build a lot of new stuff? Well, and it gets more complicated than that. Um, as a planner, you'll appreciate this. And this is one thing I struggle with a lot. If you set down a map of where the parks are in the city of Memphis, ironically, and it's not truly ironically, but once we started having stopped having impact fees um, in the early 20th century, you see the lack of creation of parks start to happen around Midtown. So, which obviously, you know, at that time was far east Memphis. <laughs> right. As the Memphis continued to grow out eastward, we did not require developers to do set asides or have funding to create public parks. And so the density of our parks is actually right now closer aligned to an equity index. Um, the areas where we would need to build parks if we were to get to a 10 minute walk campaign 
are in the parts of town where you would frankly say, I don't need know that those folks need um, a park um, in terms of, you know, their access to transportation, their access to church or um, private parks. But that being said, we have to balance those two things because the, the studies would say that now what I am doing is being unequitable because I am, I'm, I'm going so far with equity that I'm, I'm not really balancing equality with that. Um, and so we have to, we have to strive to okay, do those two things. Up. But the first thing that we have to do is listen to what the people said. So rather than going out and building a whole bunch of new parks, which ultimately I, I hope to do um, in later phases of this plan, I hope in five years our vision is a little more aligned with uh, the desire to add more amenities out there to, to build new parkland. But in the first five years, we've really got to focus on fixing the things that we have. Um, developing service levels to improve how often we cut things, how often we fix things, and how often we replace things. So there's a lot of parks in the community, both neighborhood parks that are a little smaller and community parks that are bigger and serve a larger area that are underutilized. And this plan seems like a great opportunity to activate those in some way. So talk a little bit about, first of all, the reasons why those aren't being used and how you'd like to just increase usage of those. Sure. I think probably the easiest thing to start with is the reasons that, that were given to us as a part of the planning process. Uh, the three big things that we heard were lack of communication. People didn't know about activities that were going on in the park. Um, safety and security. Uh, there was a feeling that um, that the parks were unsafe. And it's, it's funny because I've had this conversation with foundations here recently. And the one thing I will point out is that statistically and data-wise, parks are no more or less safe than the rest of the city. In, in fact, the data would suggest that they're safer than the city. And part of that is, um, as a planner, I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here, but the fact that neighborhoods generally tend to look out for their own and have an, a vested interest in keeping those neighborhood parks safe. Um, and then the third thing was that the amenities don't line up with what people are looking for. Uh, there aren't walking trails. Um, there aren't water fountains, whatever, whatever specific thing that that park is. So the first thing that we have to do is communicate our programming better. Um, and that's something that we're working on with a couple of different partners is to improve our website so that people will know what activities are happening and what amenities are in what parks. It's actually part of a larger initiative citywide. Uh, the second thing is to, um, to try to find a way to have monitoring of the parks, whether that is MPD working with us to do directed patrol, whether that is having some sort of volunteer groups, like I mentioned Memphis City Beautiful and Bloom, um, having folks come into the parks and activate the space, or whether that is you know, mid-range, long-term goal of having some sort of ranger program where we have staff that help um, both from a security standpoint and from an interpretive standpoint, uh, which you see in like the state park system, folks there to help do some educational programming, uh, similar to what you'd see at Shelby Farms or uh, Tom Lee Park. Um, so those are the three things. And then the last thing is using the master plan to identify the fact that we need to add more walking trails, add more splash pads. Um, possibly look at shifting some basketball courts around and putting in playgrounds. Are some of those improvements relatively low cost? 
They are and aren't. It's funny. I when I tell people, uh, Councilman Morgan, uh, I was having this conversation with him about the, the playground that we're going to update at Ottoman Park, and he goes, "Well, how much are we talking about?" And it's like fifty, sixty thousand dollars. I said, "No, to replace the playground at Ottoman, it's closer to a half million dollars." Um, and it's just mind blowing. But it is also important that we replace those with good quality um, uh, play surfaces that are ADA compliant and um, set up so that. And, and there's a world of difference. Um, ADA compliant is not just putting down uh, a pine bark, which actually technically works because you can roll a wheelchair across it as long as it's got flat access. Now, we're talking about the pour-in-place, at least 18 inches deep uh, play surfaces that we have across the city. That's expensive. Then buying good quality, long-lasting play structures is also expensive. But it's worth it in the long run because otherwise – the, the quality would degrade so quickly that whatever savings you made for you know, keep people from using the park. Well, you mentioned Bloom, and of course, Bloom <laughs> is is a nonprofit that was formed to cultivate sort of friends groups um, to you know engage neighbors around parks to um, adopt them, and you know because not every park's going to have an Overton Park Conservancy yeah. or the similar because those. Uh, first of all, there's a big regional parks that draw a lot of users, but also a lot of times those are in more affluent areas. And um, so that's not going to be the case. And obviously there's a concern about, you know, park resources being, whether they're private or public, being distributed fairly. So um, mm-hmm. so how does the, um, and I know Bloom is really just, just getting going. It's just a couple of years old, but I'm guessing that's, partnerships like that, even if they cost you something, you know, in terms of small grants are, are going to be really important to drive traffic to some of these small parks. The more we get folks engaged in parks and understanding the importance of green spaces, going back to programs, like you mentioned earlier, like green print, that was really the genesis of a lot of this renaissance of public private partnerships and investing in municipal spaces. And I think we have to keep driving that out. Uh, Bloom, once it lands on whatever it's going to become, is going to be a key part of that. Um, the friends of groups that it will spawn and stabilize will be a huge part of that. And to be named later, philanthropic and state and federal funding will be sort of the third leg of that school. And we're looking forward to all three of those being important. Well, actually, that's really sort of my last big question is has to do with the funding because, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's a pretty big uh, price tag. The needs are great. And the the emphasis is on, you know, improving what we have, which is great. But I wanted just to kind of talk a little bit about the funding, sort of breaking it up. First of all, you know, the capital side, which is the the physical stuff. I noticed that there was, I think, seventy-five million in the Accelerate Memphis plan um, for that. And it, and from my reading, and of course, I don't know. I'm not an insider. It seems like that actually will get you a decent way towards, you know, the physical improvements you wanted to have. Which I think go through those three buckets. Like there's sort of the urgent, the um, something in the middle and then nice to have, and then and then yeah. how you how you see those that those funding be deployed and then when and that's that's like seventeen questions. So I'm sorry. no, you're good, you're good. <laughs> I will tell you that that accelerate is the double edged sword because it is wonderful. It will allow us to 
do a lot of the deferred maintenance that we just as a city haven't been able to do because of the financial crisis of the early 2000s that put us more of in a stabilized mode for the last 20 years. It will allow us to do deferred maintenance on our community centers. It will allow me to replace a lot of the deferred maintenance on the equipment out in the playgrounds and the parks. Um, and it will allow us to do a couple of cool construction projects. A lot of that is the stuff that you're talking about. Sort of the three, the three buckets are the urgent that we need to get to today, um, the nice to have, which are the medium uh, range goals of um, doing some things like pivoting from away from outdoor pools to more indoor pools or flashbacks. And then the sort of moonshot stuff, uh, which actually we, we get a little bit from all three with this because Accelerate will allow us to do a lot of the deferred maintenance, which is in the, the urgent. It will allow us to put in some splash pads, which are in that medium to long range. And then it allows me to build a new Geisman, you know, which if anyone who's spent time in the Berkeley area, it's a well, it's, it's so similar to Ed Rice. It is Ed Rice, but instead of being in Fraser, it's in Berkeley. Oh, it's wonderful. And Chris it's Collier, a, Chris Collier. Yeah. I mean, yes, yeah. I'm a it's, member it's, of his band club as you probably <laughs> are too. Yeah. Chris is, a, Chris is a great guy who advocates strongly. And that's, that is what is funny is there are two or three Chris Colliers in Fraser. There are two or three uh, Chris Colliers in Raleigh. When you go around the city, I, I know these folks, um, Joanne Street and Hollywood University in Gooch area. Yep, hug. Yeah, yeah hug, who, who advocate strongly on their neighborhoods. And the thing is, we love that. And, it's, and it, it is tough because it is tough love. They tell you what you need to hear, not what you want to hear. And when we have the resources to do it, we will certainly follow through. It's, it's it's funny that we mentioned those three because there's going to be a splash pad in Hollywood. Um, we are obviously doing Ed Rice up in the Fraser area, and and Geisman will be the first time that we've really taken a comprehensive look at the community center and the park since Burt Ferguson in 2001-2002. Um, but all that to say, that's that means that we're getting it at all three levels. The bulk of the money is going to the urgent. A good amount of money is going to the moonshot because moonshot's so expensive. But I would say it's a probably an equal dollar amount between the nice to have and the moonshot stuff. But long term, I don't want people to think that, that, that the war is won. That, that is a great shot in the arm. But we still have north of $100 million in deferred maintenance after that gets done. Um, we still have a lot of communities that need a lot of love. Um, and we need to find a way to get out of the general fund. Uh, we need a dedicated funding source for parks and green spaces, and that takes time. The first thing we have to do is prove that we deserve it, and then once we've proven that, figure out a way to get there. But successful park systems outside of Shelby County um, are ones that have a dedicated funding source uh, or are those small suburban systems that can get cost recovery to the point of existing. But that's not – that's we're a quality of life business. We should not be um, a uh, – an LA fitness that, that has a city logo on it. Well, um, I saw that um, those potential funding sources, and of course mm -hmm. I've been involved in, you know, putting together plans over the years and, you know, you're doing best practices research. And I mean, there were several things identified. Um, one is a, um, you know, essentially a tax on tourists. One is something that's kind of like tax increment financing. Um, one is a real estate transfer tax that, um, you know, 
a lot of people have advocated for. Yeah. yeah. So over the years, including myself, for affordable yeah. housing. And yep. so I guess, and, and not to uh, say I think those are unrealistic, because I certainly don't, but I guess um, that takes a lot of political, and are any of those things you're really going, I mean, you do need a dedicated funding. Yeah. Do you see over time um, building the support for those things? Um, the and funny then, thing is, yeah. I think that honestly, and this is just my personal opinion, and, and granted, I, this is one of those ones where I have to like do the, the boilerplate disclaimer at the beginning of it. I do not speak for the city of Memphis administration or the city council. But I think realistically, parks, schools, and libraries are in a unique position in that from a political goodwill standpoint, it doesn't take much. Um, what it is is prioritizing and proving that it is important to make that investment. Um, I think much along the lines of public safety, the public is not would not put up a lot of fight if we were able to show that we would be good stewards of that money, um, which is why, in my mind, it's sort of making the, the, the two-phase approach for us is doing the best with what we have, uh, proving that we are meeting the needs of citizens where we are now, and then following up with a strategy, because I'm with you. I, I think that section was in there to identify potential funding sources, but we would need to take a much deeper look at um, creative ways, um, using things that, that other places use, but any of those would suffice. I mean, like literally any of those that got us to the point of $50 million a year outside of the general fund. And that's, that's not a hard lift. The sales tax that was recently done uh, for the police and fire pension, I want to say that that half cent would have more than covered it. Now, that's off the table now because of the state legislature, but things like that, finding a $50 million dedicated stream, which would get us closer to that $100 citizen average that you see um, advocated for by NRPA and the City Parks Alliance, that's, that's not out of the realm of possibility for our capital and operating budgets to total about $66 million, which would be $100. Well, that's what mine, it was sort of my next and related question yeah. was, was about, um, you know, the operating side, because, I mean, you're going to need more people yeah. um, and um, more, just more people and more resources generally for programming, for engagement, for social media, all those things. I mean, I know you, you there's a need for sort of a realignment and you've talked about that realigning what you have now, but, yeah. um, but that can't like accelerate Memphis. That's not going to pay for any of that. So yeah. Um, is that making the case in the city budget or do you anticipate some of these other funding sources like philanthropy, hope, hopefully stepping up to help with that? I think it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Um, I think that, you know, I've, I've worked in city government for about 15 years now. And the thing that I have seen over and over again is that the easiest way to justify doing something is by doing it. Um, you know, and so if we, as a parks division, do the work, and, and run out of money doing the work, then it's a whole lot easier to ask for more money than it is to, without showing the effort, ask for the money. So I think Accelerate helps us with that. We build the things. We already see these huge increases. Um, I had a conversation earlier today with somebody from, from High Ground, and, and we were talking about 60% is sort of the agreed upon increase that we've seen in activation of public spaces over the last year. Um, so that people know that the stuff is there. If we add more amenities, if we build 
uh, more things that are akin to David Carnes Park um, in Whitehaven, those numbers will continue to increase. And then it doesn't it doesn't take much to go, okay, you need more money. <laughs> you know, at that point it becomes pretty simple. You don't have to do a complicated formula to explain the need um, if the if the visual evidence is overwhelming. And if people feel like the money is being well spent, which yes. you which you alluded to. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I think there's a lot of opportunities to be creative. I'm sure some of the national partners can help with that um, in terms of, yeah, like people, not just user fees, people could buy subscriptions to support the parks. Generally, I certainly would do that. I'm sure there's others that would. And philanthropy. Yeah, I agree with you. But it's incredibly, the plan is wonderful. And I'm super excited about the implementation. You and us both. <laughs> so, so, so um, you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR. And I've been talking to Nick Walker, who's the director of parks and neighborhoods for the city of Memphis. We've been talking about a new master plan for the parks. So Nick, thank you so much for coming on as my guest. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. You're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Have you checked out any of WYXR's other shows? You can see the whole program guide on our website at wyxr.org. And while you're there, please consider making a donation. We're a brand new station lifting up everything Memphis, and we need your support. But don't go away. Stay tuned for the rest of the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the second half of Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. Um, I'm here with Cole Bradley. Cole's one of our regular commentators. Cole's the editor of High Ground News. Uh, so welcome, Cole. Hello. Thanks for having me back. So, Cole, um, we've got some news to announce, which is that you are going to be joining me as a co-host on some shows coming up in the future. Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, we're sort of bringing back the the two amigos from our podcasting days, right? Um, exactly. I'm excited so, about it. We loved our podcast, and I've missed doing it in the pandemic. So this is we similar. did. We did. Um, Cole and I hosted a podcast, uh, uh, a high ground news podcast for. Uh, for a while, it was hosted by Daily Memphi, and it was great. Uh, we had a lot of positive feedback from it. We had a lot of neighborhood leaders on it. and But, of course, that was recorded in the Daily Memphian studios, and we, we had a great producer, Natalie Van Gundy, helped us put the whole thing together. And so, like a lot of things, that was negatively impacted by the pandemic and had to go on hiatus. In the meantime, I started in Memphis Metropolis, um, which is – some of the same subjects, a little more focused on the built environment, but a lot of the same topics, neighborhoods. And so anyway, Cole and I were just talking and decided that it would be great to team up again, especially on a series Memphis Metropolis has called um, Neighborhood Spotlights. Yeah. I mean, that's high grounds, bread and butter, obviously neighborhoods. We go deep uh, into our specific on the ground neighborhoods that we have what 13 and a half now, 14 of them. You encounter our first little prototype, which was the edge um, years ago. That's that seven years ago now or something. Yeah. Uh, our first on the ground neighborhood. So yeah, I mean, we love it. This is what we do best 
uh, for a high grounds perspective. And obviously you're an incredible planner and tapped into the, the neighborhood um, heartbeats, so to speak. And so I think it's just a really, this is just a no brainer. We're going to be great at this, not to toot our own horns. I think so too. Uh, so stay tuned for that, everybody. We'll be announcing our first one here in next in the, over the next couple of weeks. So Cole, uh, I, I really want today for us to, you know, continue and riff a little bit on building on my conversation with Nick Walker from the city parks department. He's the director of parks and neighborhoods for the city. And we talked about an, a master plan for parks. I know you've had a chance to listen to that and reflect on it. And of course you and I have talked a lot about parks. So I wanted to start off actually with talking about something that, that I didn't ask him about. I just didn't have time. And, but it's something that high grounds getting ready to run a story on, which is that there's been a, not surprisingly, there's been a huge increase in park and greenway usage since the pandemic started. Yeah. And I think some of it's just observation, right? You've observed it. I've observed it. We got to talking about this idea that every time I go to a park, you know, my wife and I, we, we try to walk five times, you know, get, be active five times a week as, uh, as every doctor recommends. And so we've been going to different city parks since probably since last fall, pick a different city park a couple times a week and check them out. And every time they've just been packed to the rafters, even in the bad weather. Well, not the worst of snowmageddon, but even in the winter, they were busier than I'd ever seen them before. And I've had a lifelong love affair with parks in Memphis. So some of it's just observation, but it was really cool to hear Nick actually confirm uh, that 60 percent. They're they're kind of saying it's roughly a 60 percent increase this in the last year. That's amazing. I think it really goes to show you that while parks may not be just jam-packed and, and programmed daily and in constant use, they're very important. And they're a very important place when, when all other things are equalized, like income, uh, when no one's got a lot of money because it's a pandemic. And suddenly you see just how important they are. When you can't be near to people inside. Suddenly you see just how important they are. Yeah. It's been cool. I'm excited to see what our writer, Chris Jones, uh, produces. I should get a draft in the next uh, couple of days. And that's going to run in next week's edition, you said. It should. Yeah. It should run in next week's edition. Well, and uh, some of the parks... Some of the parks that have conservancies, such as Overton Park Conservancy, Shelby Farms Conservancies, have actually gotten grants to install counters. And as has, I think, the the Memphis River Parks Partnership. And so there's actually data, and I don't know whether Chris is going to be able to, is going to report this, but there's actually data in those parks that shows that there's, I mean, I think some days there's, you know, thousands of people in some of these parks have been during the pandemic. Yeah, uh, there it will be data. Uh, you know, I'm a data fool too. You're dead. You know, we like the numbers, and so Chris is definitely looking into some of the not just City of Memphis, although he's talked with Nick. Uh, Walker and Nick Oler, bike ped person at the city of Memphis, because it's not just parks. We have other green spaces here, like green lines uh, uh, that 
the usage on those have, have been greatly increased too. So just really curious to see what all that data shows in combination. I think it's I think it's pretty obvious that there's an uptick. I'm curious to see how much. Well, and I know there's counters on um, big river crossing. Yes. So um, I do think as the, you know, Nick talked about, you know, building the case for increased financial support of parks and certainly that kind of data can't hurt for sure. Not, uh, not with the trends that it's currently showing. I mean, you talk about supply and demand, demand is high. Yep. So along those lines, um, I wanted to get your thoughts on something that uh, Nick brought up in our discussion, which was that, and, and specific, I asked him about, um, about you know, neighborhood parks in particular and, and his thoughts about activating them. But, you know, I think, and he, he brought up that a lot of people, it's not not enough awareness. His office has not done a good enough job promoting parks and their services, but you've observed that as well, right? That people sometimes don't even know there's a park in their neighborhood. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and some of that, I think it is about what's programmed there. More importantly, the amenities, you know, if a park, there are a lot of parks that don't have uh, anything, you know, I think there's the one in, it's a lovely juxtaposition between Geisman Park, which is just in the Heights district, uh, where Geisman is just this gem of a park. I think it's 20 plus acres, fields and all of these uh, playgrounds. And there's even a swimming pool and tennis courts. And then a few, about a mile and a half or so away, there's another park. And I forget the name of it. There's a little park called Park. There's a well, Treadwell Park's at Treadwell School. School, that's not the one. There's a little park. It's called Highland Park. That's one. Highland Park. Park. It's nothing. It's a field. It's nothing. It's and it's small too. It's about the size of maybe two house lots. Very small. It's a um. No, there's a sign there. Um, and I don't even think there's a picnic table. There's not. There's nothing in that field. And so when we talk about you know park usage and park awareness, obviously you're going to have disparity when it comes to things like that. Most people in the Heights neighborhoods in Berkeley are going to know about Geisman. Very few people are going to know about this Highland Park, which would be a great small neighborhood park for the the houses that sit around there. You know, It's almost a pocket park. It is very much a pocket park, but there's nothing there. It's a park at field, right? And so when you talk about awareness, some of it is what's offered. Some of it's also basic stuff. If there's not bathrooms that are unlocked people aren't going to go and hang out and stuff but you know i don't know it's it's challenging it's not like parks has a constant programming uh like uh you know if you're going to a the memphis symphony ballet they have pr people and programming if you're going to you know stuff at levitt shell or whatever well, they, they bad need examples. that um, no no, they need that, I think. And I think that's, he intends to, yes. um, he intends to beef that up. Yes. Um, one of the I things, think, I guess my point was, it's a little nature of the beast. People create their own programming at the park. Yes, there are things that happen at parks that are programmed by the city or by friends groups, et cetera. But you make your own programming. Therefore, you have to be aware of the park and what's offered and you go do your own thing there. So it's a little challenging to create PR around a space that you choose your own adventure. Right. Right. Like, like, 
you have to know about it has to be top of mind for you to schedule the neighborhood picnic there. Exactly. So, yeah, I agreed. It's a little bit cart before the horse and it's got to happen. Some of that's got to happen organically. There's never going to be programming probably for Highland Park, but there could be, you know, a picnic table and there could be um, maybe not the half million dollar playground, but there could be, you know, a small playground, maybe a little with a little shade. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll to tell you, point, if, they put a, if they put a splash pad there, that would bring some people in. Always. To your point about neighborhood awareness, though, if you put a picnic table, a pavilion, something that allowed there to be a larger gathering, then more people go, more people become aware, etc. So that ties back into that amenity piece. So, um, and this is a little bit of a digression, but I've noticed this over the years, is that some of the parks are not... Um, they're not officially active parks, but they're still on the parks list. This I don't think this made it into my interview. I don't think this park got recorded, but I had mentioned to him a park that was didn't seem to have any activity at all. It was a park called American Way Park, and it's right off American Way in the Parkway Village neighborhood. And I go there because United Housing has its offices down there. So I go down there for meetings. It's right near there. And you pull out and there's this looks like a big field, big field. And um, that was and it, when I was first asking him about this. I used that as an example, like American Way Park. That's bigger than a neighborhood park, but there's never. And he said, well, that's not really a park. Interesting. Um, not really a park. It's with some, I think it may be floodplain from the, maybe the Nankana. And he said, you know, it's, it's under, it's, it's um, sort of underutilized, but you know what? There is a sign that says American way park. Right. And I sort of wonder about Highland park. Like, is that a, um, I mean, I know the city owns land that they intended to put parks on that's just vacant land, but there's, there are some parks that are labeled parks and that should be part of the communication strategy, I think. If it's going to be a park, um, there should be something. And if it's not going to be a park, maybe they should just take the sign down. Right. I, it would be fascinating to to do a study of the acquisitions of the, the lands. You know, were some of these things, things that they've had for a long time and they just said, you know what, folks wanted to, you know, 30, 40 years ago, somebody said, I want a park. So they stuck a sign there, you know? Right. And then the the neighborhood was supposed to raise the funds and it never happened and whatever. It would just be interesting to see what are the stories on some of these, particularly these completely undeveloped park spaces. We have some jewels of parks in the city that are just incredible park spaces. But then we also have a lot of these just fields with signs. That was very interesting what um, the discussion about equity um, and his point that that actually you know the, the neighborhoods where we think of as that have equity issues actually have have, have enough parks um, but the neighborhoods that don't have enough parks to meet that you know 10 minute walk threshold mm-hmm. sometimes there are more affluent areas so how do you balance that and um, so I thought that was fascinating. It's the sort of clash of a car city with a with an outdoor green space amenity, right? Uh, we're a car city and people who are middle class, affluent and middle class here, don't struggle to get anywhere. But without a car in Memphis, you can't get hardly anywhere with efficiency, right? And so, yeah, when you talk about equity of parks and we talk about... Um, you know, what is equal access, 
you have to take into account those things. Midtown, while there may not be a park within every Midtowner's 10 minute walk, most of Midtown can ride or bike to Overton Park. And they've got one of the best parks in not just the city, in the country. But also in North Memphis, there's like three community centers very close together. And so you could argue that that neighborhood has has enough community centers, whereas Southeast Memphis, of course, they've got that one big, beautiful one, but um, they don't ha- they don't have as many. And it's just that we're just balancing that uh, balancing that is uh, just I, I just thought that was interesting. It is interesting. But then also, you know, talk about North Memphis. North Memphis uh, spans, I think it was 13 and a half ish, 14 miles east to west. Uh, from the river all the way to where Jackson Avenue curls up and heads towards Raleigh. And they may have three community centers, but there are still plenty of North Memphians who do not have a a park within a mile's walk. And up there, you've got major uh, issues with transportation, with personal transportation. Oh, for sure. Don't get me wrong. Those, as you and Nick discussed, those community centers in North Memphis are very much anchor institution, not just in North Memphis, in throughout the city. They're anchor institutions and they're well used. Hollywood Community Center in particular, uh, very well used. And that's great, but you still have people who cannot get to those parks. You oh, know? for sure. I think the point was just that there's a, a high, a relatively high concentration of parks and community centers in some of our yes. urban neighbor, our poor urban neighborhoods, whereas there isn't a big concentration in some other areas that might be more affluent. So, yes. um, and so, how do you balance that? Um, how do you balance that out? I don't so, envy. I don't envy the parks department. It's a difficult question. It is. So, um, well, I think in the short term, they're going to focus on. Um, maintenance and repairs and upgrades. So, um, which I'm, there is so much deferred maintenance that that's long overdue. That infusion of, of funding from the city is long overdue. So they don't have to worry about it today, but, but so what, I mean, how, going back to neighborhood parks for a minute, I mean, you talk, we talked about ways, I asked him and you and I talked about some ways to sort of activate I mean, people doing it themselves and, you know, more marketing, but how else? Like in, like let's say, you know, Clonic Smoky City, a neighborhood park, the people, it's there, but people are not really using it. How do you get people to, to, to use it? Well, one of the things Nick said was, and I think this is true, is that there's a mismatch between what people want and what is there. Like, for example, people really want walking trails. See, that's pretty much what I was going to say, was you want to get people to parks, you have to offer what they want. To offer what they want, you have to talk to them first. I think that was, you know, the number of people that they talked to for the Parks Master Plan. I think it was 30,000 or something people. That's a substantial number of voices to include, to find out what do people want. Beyond that, I'm going to say it is not fully the city's responsibility uh, to make people aware of the parks and to make people use the parks. People are going to use the parks or they're not based on the amenities that are there, but they're a public space and it is the public's job to care about them. 
So the parks that have the most activation, if you look at them, they all have parks groups. They all have friends that care about them who have taken up the cause of that park to say, we want better amenities. We want uh, cleanliness and safety. And not only are we going to ask our government to provide that, but we're also going to ask ourselves. So going back to Geisman, and there are lots of folks, I think you guys mentioned hugs uh, group and there are lots of friends groups. And so I don't mean to harp on. So let's elaborate. Just I didn't explain that in the first half hour. So hug is a, a, a group, a friends group for three parks in North Memphis. Now I'm going to Hollywood and there's a U and there's a G. Gooch. Gooch. Okay. Oh, oh and a university. Yes. And so there's a group, you know, a neighbor group that works in all three of them just to keep them activated, to help clean them up. It's, the group's called Hug. And I just, because I mentioned that in the first half, I didn't really explain what it was. And um, it's great. Yeah. And so what I was going to say was they're amazing. And I don't mean to harp on Geisman. I just happen to be a little more familiar because that was my part growing up. I I quite literally teethed on basketball sitting at that park while my dad and my uncle shot hoops, you know, uh, and I've, that's park has been in my life for almost 38 years now. And so the way that it's progressed, I think is just a, a really interesting case study on what it means when the public reinvests in their own park. So Chris Collier gets out there and starts picking up trash on his own every single day. And then he starts talking to, you know, his elected officials and he starts talking to the community center director and he starts, people start seeing what's happening. And it just kind of builds this movement to uh, reactivate and really truly save Geisman Park because it had gotten pretty bad. The basketball, the amenities were gone like basketball courts, the half of that park is big open field space that had some fencing for sports uh, fields, but wasn't developed really at all. And this was what, five, 10 years ago, uh, that it was half of the park was underutilized. There was a playground, a community center, and even they were underutilized. You go there today uh, on a Saturday, a pretty Saturday, Every inch of that field is covered in people playing various sports, kids, adults, the park is packed. You know, there's people playing tennis. And now to hear Nick say that that park is going to be uh, one where they sort of pilot looking at the park and the community center together and how they're adapting them. It's a, that's a fantastic one to start with for that. They're about to do an arboretum, a certified arboretum in this park that was just a field five, six years ago, you know, 10 years ago. So I really think that there, that park is activated and active and beloved again, because individual citizens stepped up and cared. And I do think that it's going to take that because, you know, there's never going to be enough resources to never going to be enough resources to, you know, program, provide security for, do everything that's wanted for, especially for the small neighborhood parks. And I'd love to see more. And that's, I think we, I've been wanting to have 
uh, the executive director of Bloom on the program, which I haven't yet, because Bloom's a new nonprofit that was formed specifically just to foster these friends groups for parks. And, you know, in some cities, like I think Philadelphia is, Philadelphia is a, uh, you know, a great model for, for a lot of, a lot of interesting community development work. Like we think of them as murals and they've, but, uh, they, but Philadelphia I believe has a big citywide conservancy type organization and all they do is foster and support friends groups. And so, and the goal is to have a friends group for every park. Um, And there's, you know, grants and support and help with fundraising. And, and I certainly think that's a, I mean, that's a, a, a moonshot in its own way, but it's going to take those kind of citizen, citizen activity. I agree with you. People have to, even if they don't have a friends group, they have to say, you know what? We're going to have a picnic in this park. We're going to do national, we're, we're doing national night anyway. You know what? Let's yeah. just do it in this park where we don't have. Um, yeah. Look at Douglas. Look at the amount of programming that they do at Douglas Park. Uh, that Time Is Now Douglas and other folks do at du- in Douglas Park. They do food giveaways. They have Juneteenth, uh, Juneteenth celebration. They um, have had, you know, just a number of community events. They program that park. Yep. And that park is another just jewel of a park that gets the attention that it does because its citizens go there. They show up and they throw events. They bring other people to that park. They say, come look at my park. Yeah, I agree. Douglas is the jewel. I'll also, before we get off, I'll plug, we did a story this week too, not just to focus on the city, but I think Shelby County Schools is something that we don't talk about enough when we talk about parks. Shelby County School parks, most of them are used as community parks. They do serve as neighborhood parks and they're a huge asset. And I think that, you know, Shelby County Schools probably doesn't have to let the community in on their properties like that. And they do. They, they fill a gap that the city of Memphis could never, uh, you know, like we talked about that in order to spread the density, it's difficult. And so the, the city of Memphis or the Shelby County schools really helps step up there. And we just did a story on Treadwell park that after decades, literally decades, I, I attended Treadwell in kindergarten. We played in the big open field because there was no playground. I cut my hand on a broken glass bottle. Like this is what was going on in the eighties. They now have this really cool nature playground, very cool nature playground that, you know, check out the story that it's very unique looking. The design's really cool. And the kids help design it. I'll post a link in the show notes for people that listen to this on a podcast. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's a uh, community park just as much as it is the school's park. Okay. Well, on that note, that's great. Um, I've been talking to Cole Bradley, who's the editor of High Ground News. We've been talking about parks in Memphis. So thank you for visiting Memphis Metropolis, Cole. Absolutely. Thanks for having me again, Emily. And I look forward to having you as a co-host very soon. Thanks. Hey, everybody, get out and go to a park. Have fun. Get out. It's a beautiful day. You know, it's going to be really hot really soon. Enjoy it while we can, right? You got it. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org 
or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.